As we worship here uh, for this last time um, in, in 2012, in a couple of days, we turn the calendar to, to January. Um, January, New Year's Day, around New Year's time, the end of the year is always a time for us to, uh, to reflect, right? I don't know if you know um, the origin of the, of the name uh, uh, January. It comes from, a, I think it's a Greek god or goddess named, named Janus or Janus. Um, anyone familiar with Janus? Janus? Okay, cool. Basically, um, yeah, basically he's a... Uh, is it a god or goddess? God? Okay. It doesn't really matter because it's not real. But um, <laughs> Greek god named, named Janus, and she, uh, he has two faces. Okay, one face is this way, the other face is this, the other way. One face is forward, the other face is backwards. And so um, the, uh, the Romans said, hey, let's name the first month of the year January after this god as a way of looking backwards at the past and reflection as well as looking forward uh, to the future in anticipation. And so as we near the beginning of January, as we look back, as we think about our year, how was year 2012? E- even as you, as, as you hear that question, how do you even begin to define that question? Right? How do you even begin to answer that question? And as we look forward to 2013, what are you expecting? What are you excited about? What are you anticipating for the year to come? As we ask these two questions that we ask every uh, January, every New Year's Day, I want to look into Matthew chapter 16 and look at a promise that Jesus gives to Peter. And I think this will be helpful to us as we seek to answer that question as a church um, and even as individuals and to see where we ought to go in this new year in regards to that question. Okay, So we're going to read from Matthew chapter 16. Um, a well-known passage, first time anyone says that um, Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ. So we're going to read starting in verse 13, and then we'll read through uh, verse 20. This is God's word. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Okay, verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was a Christ. I want to read verse um, 18 again. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is God's word. How do we answer this question? How would you do? How was your 2012? And what are you anticipating? What do you think 2013 is going to look like? Whenever you ask a question like this, how are you doing? How's it going? In any context, I I, want to propose to you that we have to first ask ourselves, um, who are we talking about? Who are we competing against? We have to know our competition. This is the first thing. We have to know our competition. In any endeavor, okay, in any endeavor, we have to know against whom we are competing. So tonight at 8.30, of the official NFL team of, of Harvest, the Washington Redskins, are going to be playing 
an amazing game. Okay, this is for all of the marbles here in the NFC East. The winner automatically goes to the playoffs, which is going to be the Redskins. I'm just going to, I'm, I'm prophetically saying this right now, but it's going to be the Redskins. But as they play, okay, we have to understand one thing. It's important for the team to know against whom they're competing. Okay, you could have the wide receiver of the Redskins right, saying, you know what? I scored a touchdown. That's six points for me. Our running back doesn't have any touchdowns. He's got zero points. I've got six. He's got zero. So I'm winning. I'm having a great game. And it's, it, might be, it might be a temptation for them to say that. Or it might be the temptation to think, you know what? Hey, um, as we look at the scoreboard, there's another team that we really don't like. They're called the New York Giants. And as they look at the scoreboard, they see that the Giants have 15 points. And so the Redskins are like, we need to beat the Giants. We need to score more points than the Giants. And so we got to get 21 points or at least 16 points. But none of that really matters because the competition that they're playing against is not each other. It's not the other teams in the league. It's the Dallas Cowboys, right? That's who they're playing. And if we don't consider who we're competing against, then it's very easy for our priorities to get mixed up. And it's easy for us to become complacent. So who are we competing against, right? Let me, let me give another illustration. Here's another way to see it. When um, Olivia and I were doing premarital counseling before we got married, one of the things that uh, she heard from, her, uh, from the person who was counseling her said, you guys are going to get into arguments. You guys are going to have conflict. But in your arguments, you need to understand that your husband is not your enemy. Okay, that he is not your competition. Your competition is everything that wars against your marriage. That's your competition. You're not trying to win an argument against David. You're trying to win the relationship. How easy is it for us in marriage relationships to think that we're fighting against each other and trying to win an argument to see I prove myself to you, right? I'm smarter. I'm stronger. I argued better than you. I yelled louder. I got my way. Ha ha. Now you owe me one. We're not, if we're married to each other, We're not each other's competition. We're fighting against everything that wars against our relationship. And if we don't define our competition properly, we're going to define this question of how are you doing completely incorrectly. One other example. There are these two brothers living in Texas, bad men, evil men, evil men, but they're also extremely rich. And so they did all kinds of evil things, but they covered it up with bribes by paying a lot of money. Right, so these two guys, lots of bad stuff, robbed people, stole from other people. Um, I don't know. They, um, yeah, they did a bunch of bad stuff, right? Whatever it is, you can imagine, fill in the blank. Did bad stuff, but they also went to church, and they gave lots of money to church so that their pastor was like, oh, yeah, they must be great guys. Okay, this pastor was completely oblivious. He got old, and he retired, and a new pastor came in town. A new pastor is very perceptive. And he saw right through these guys' good deeds and efforts to give money in order to, be, uh, in order to show themselves as good. He saw their heart and knew that they're wicked, evil people. Uh, he started doing this building project and was building a new, uh, a new uh, addition to their church. And as he was doing this, one of the brothers died. Okay, one of the brothers died, and the other brother went to the pastor and said, Oh my gosh, you know what? Um, I know you know our hearts. I know you know that we're wicked. But one thing I ask you, I'm going to give $10 million to fund this building. At his funeral, can you just say that he was a saint? And so this pastor was a man of integrity, but he said, you know what, I'll do it. I don't do it. $10 million, that's great. I'll say, I'll say your brother was a saint. So he's standing at, his, at the funeral, and he's talking about him, and he just speaks the truth. 
that he was a bad man. He was awful. He stole. He bribed. You guys all think he's a great guy, but he was terrible. And he said, but compared to his brother, that he was a saint. And who's our competition? If we're competing against the wrong competition, it's easy for us to become complacent. And who is our competition? As you ask yourself, how was your 2012? As you think, well, compared to other people, I did a little bit better than them. At least I didn't, you know, I I went to church 52 times this year. My friend only went 51 times. I must have had a good year. I did my quiet time 85 times. He only did it 83 times. I was checking, right? And I just wanted to make sure that I did at least one more than him. And in case we miscalculated, two more than him. Compared to him, I had a pretty good year. What's our competition? Right? Who are we comparing ourselves to? Well, we ask ourselves, how did we do? As a church, I wrote in my letter to, to, to you guys, okay, we had 13 people baptized and confirmed last year. That's great. New members, right? people completing our Harvest 201 class. And they talk about in our presbytery, in our denomination, right? churches are hemorrhaging people. Is that our rubric? Right? Compared to other churches in our denomination, we're doing pretty good, so it must have been a good year. When our presbytery asks for our year-end reports, how are your numbers? How are your attendance? How's your offering? And we say we're doing better than other people. Is that what we're looking at? That's not, my comp- that's not our competition. Jesus says, here it is, in verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And we need to define our competition properly. This is who we're fighting against. As a church, we're not fighting against each other. We're not looking at how was my house church compared to their house church. We added people. They lost people. We're doing pretty good. That's not our competition. It's not how was my Sunday school class compared to somebody else's. That's not what we're defining ourselves against. Our competition is the gates of hell, and all of hell is fighting against us. And compared to that, that's what we gauge how our 2012 was. That's what we're looking at. That's what we're fighting against. And we're not fighting against each other. We're not fighting against other churches. And we're fighting against the gates of hell. That's why we do everything that we do. In light of that, right, we move forward in 2013, not to see how I can do compared to other people, but how, how are we going to put a dent in the kingdom of hell? That, that's why we exist. We're trying, our business is to put hell out of business. That's what we exist for. Not to see how we're doing vis-a-vis the other Korean churches in our area or compared to other churches in our denomination or presbytery. We're trying to ask ourselves, how are we doing in terms of dousing out the flames of hell? And that's why I I was at a retreat this week in Philadelphia, outside of Philadelphia in the mountains, actually 10 degrees colder than Philadelphia. It was nice to see snow, to see snow, but not nice to be in the snow. I was all right looking at it until I had to walk outside. I asked, uh, I asked the pastor, Danny, I said, hey, how far is it from where I'm staying to our worship room? He's like about 200 yards. I'm like, oh, you got a car? <laughs> so I'm walking through there. My feet are all getting, because I, I, I don't have boots or anything. Everybody else got their Uggs, and I've got my cons. Like, cons are better than Crocs, right, walking through the snow. I'm getting all cold, and I don't have a, I don't have a beanie. Everyone else has a beanie. They've got earmuffs, and I'm, I'm just like walking like this, and snow's falling on my head, and it's cold. I took pictures and I was like, that's all I need to do. I don't need to, I don't need to be seeing snow and people in snow tubing. I'm like, that would be fun. It would be a great picture, but I don't want to sit out there in the snow. I'm going in on the bus. I mean, I'm sorry. There are four school buses that went and, and I was riding in a car with one of the other pastors. They're like, hey, can you put um, Pastor Dio with our most troubled students so that he can talk to them on the way there? 
Snow started falling. Hour and a half trip was like four hours. I'm trying to get my mind ready, and these guys are grilling me about, like, I'm, you know, all this problems with my girlfriend, non-Christian, and all this stuff. I'm doubting. I hate God. I want to walk away. What do I do? And I said, talk to your pastor. He, he knows you better than I do, right? He knows your context. And I'm going, and, man, I'm there, and I'm just giving my heart, right? People in Philly, their hearts are hard. Man, some people there, they're high on weed while they're there. And it's, it's crazy, but I'm getting, man, I'm, I'm doing my best to give everything that I've got. I'm preaching and praying and storing up prayer so that I might be able to fight against the gates of hell. That's who I'm fighting against. That's who we're fighting against. And when I ask you to, to pray as we go out, that's why we do what we do. As I think about these things, I'm thinking about, I see on Facebook, some of my other friends who are going and preaching at other retreats, and, and, and Pastor Dave Choi, he gets all these great gigs. I'm up in the Poconos and Mountains. He's in Alaska, beautiful. And he's like, hey, DL, pray for me, man. I'm praying for you. And we're praying for each other, and we're texting each other back and forth. He's like, I got to upgrade the first class. I was like, that's great, man. I'm still praying for you, bro. <laughs> we're praying for each other. Because that's our desire. We're trying to put hell out of business. Pastor B, he's, he's like, hey, you know, it's, I'm not going to see you, but we're, at least we're in the same state. He's preaching up in Pennsylvania. And he's saying, I'm praying for you. And I'm writing back and I'm praying for you. And he's like, he's telling me at the end of the night, God hit a grand slam out of the park. And I'm praying that he did even greater things at your retreat. And I'm texting him back. I was like, God's breaking and thawing through these ice cold hearts. People are coming back to the Lord. These guys who are high on weed, football players, think they're too cool for school, coming back and giving their lives to Christ. And, and I'm writing him back and I'm saying, I'm praying for you because we're not competing against each other. And we're working together to put hell out of business. That's what we're all in the business of doing. Every morning I come to church early and I'm praying and I'm, I'm getting my heart ready and I'm praying for my friends who are preaching the gospel that day. God, let them do their best to present Christ your people because hell is at stake and it's fighting and it's warring against the souls of every human being that we see that's who we're fighting against and as i come back home and i hate I, I don't like going away because i don't like being away from my family i don't being, I like being away from here i don't like being away from prayer meetings on wednesday nights i want to pray with my people i want to pray with you guys i want to be here and and i hate being away from olive i hate being away from elijah and manny and i hate telling manny i have to leave at least two weeks before I go somewhere, I say, Manny, daddy's going to go for four days or three days or how many days I have to go. I say, daddy's going to go away. And, and she gets sad. And then, you know, she always asks me why I have to go. And I always tell her, you know, Jesus loves you, right? And she's like, yeah, he loves me more than anyone else. We, we read this storybook sometimes. You know, mommy loves you. Daddy loves you. Grandma loves you. Aunties love you. Friends love you. And the last page, more than anyone else in the world, Jesus loves you. We read this to her now and then. And and I say, you know, Manny, you know, Jesus loves you. She says, yeah. I say, there are people in, in, in Philadelphia who don't know that Jesus loves them. And so daddy's going to tell them about Jesus. That's why daddy goes to Ecuador. That's why daddy goes to China. That's why daddy goes to the places he goes. And, and she says, okay, daddy, you can go. And, and I, 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 you know, I know I have to go, but at the same time, my heart breaks being away from my family. And Olive says, you know, every day, Manny says, we're going to throw a party for daddy. We're going to have a surprise party for daddy. Elijah doesn't get, he doesn't care. He doesn't know anything, but, <laughs> but him and Olivia, I, I don't like being away from them. And, and last night I got in about midnight and Olive's driving home. And, and she's like, thank you for doing what you do. Because I know that you do it because you love Jesus. That's why we fight people of God. We fight against the gates of hell because hell doesn't sleep. That's our competition. 
That's why Pastor IJ for 20 years has been doing, he's 46 years old, been ministering to college students for 20 years. Got offers all over the place to go and be the pastor somewhere else. But being in a ministry where every four years he has to say goodbye to people that he's invested in. The growing gap between college students and him, now this old man that they, they, they see. And yet this is what he says too. He says, I can't let this, the devil win. Pastor Danny Kwan, who I was with, 18 years doing ministry, right? It's the same thing because we don't want to see hell get an upper hand on us. And we give everything that we have because that's who we're fighting against. That's our competition. As a church, this is who we're fighting against. It is not each other. It's not other churches. It's not against other people. We're fighting against the gates of hell. That's it. That's our competition. That's the first thing that we've got to see as we move into the new year. And let's ask ourselves, how can I put a dent in hell? And what can I do to depopulate hell? What can I do to be a hell raiser, to shake the gates of hell and to free the captives that might be brought into the kingdom of light? That's why we live. That's what we do as a church. And we got to know who we're fighting against. Second thing that we see here is we got to know what we have. We got to know what we have. Jesus says, I tell you that Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. Okay, Jesus doesn't say, and on this rock, you will build the church. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. He's going to be the one who does it. And the sooner we begin to realize, we're fighting against hell. It's not like we can use our human means in order to do this. And sometimes my uh, Manny will want to build a fort together. Right? She likes being in a fort and and going inside there. And so she comes in and she says, Daddy, let's build a fort together. And so we're building a fort. And, and if I were to just let her build her fort, right, she's like trying to drag our dining t- table chairs and just like falling over. And she's like, oh, my leg is broken. She can't do that. Right? If she's trying to build a fort by herself, it's not going to happen. Basically, when she says, Daddy, let's build a fort together, she's smart. This is what she's saying. Daddy, you build the fort, and whatever you want me to do in order to help you, I'll do it. Daddy, you build the fort, and whatever I can do to be part of the fort-building process, then I want to be involved. Whatever you ask me to do, I'll do it. That's what it means when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. He's not saying you try and do it by yourself as you lead your Sunday school class or as you lead your house church. You do whatever you can to get all the ducks in a row to make sure you've got the best food, you've got everything organized, you make sure that you've got it all together. And then you build your house church. You build your church. He's not saying that. He's saying, I'm going to build my church, but I'm going to do it. And we have to understand this because if we're fighting against the gates of hell, this is not flesh and blood. Ephesians 6 tells us that. We're not fighting flesh and blood. We're fighting against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We cannot fight the invisible battle with visible weapons. And we can't fight an invisible spiritual war with money and food and time and all of these things. Those are all involved in it, but we need a power that's bigger than these things. That's why Jesus says, I will build my church. So a few weeks ago, this is my last Manny story, I, I promise for today. But Manny was like, I, I was feeling really sick. And Manny's like, let's play, daddy, let's do something. And I'm like, no, I can't, I'm sick. And I was, I was laying down and she said, okay, it's okay, it's okay. And she ran and she got her doctor kit and she runs to me and she takes out her stethoscope. It's like, it's okay, daddy, you're going to get better. It was cute, but ineffective. <laughs> and so when we say, I'm going to fight the gates of hell using my own weapons, 
Satan thinks that's cute, but it's not very effective. And he laughs and he laughs and he says, keep doing what you're doing because I'm not afraid of what you do. But he fears even the weakest saint who falls on his or her knees in prayer because prayer shakes the gates of hell and moves the hand that moves the world. And if we're fighting against the gates of hell, how can we not do it? How can we do it apart from the power of God in us? And how can we do it apart from the prayers of the saints? That's why we're so desperately in need of prayer. Man, I will say this until my dying breath. We are only as good a church as our prayer life is going to be. The fruit that we have will only be lasting to the degree that we're praying. That's it. That's it. That's as strong as our church is going to be. And I pray that some of us would get this. Man, I said this a couple weeks back, but we find reasons why we can't be available to God. I'm saying, what if we shifted our, our, our thinking, our thought process to say, what can I do to make myself available to God? I know we don't have all these nights in the week, but what if, we, if, we're, if we're having a hard time praying, then, then make the space to come out and pray with us on Wednesdays. Do that. And again, I, I'll say this all the time. If you're praying at home, fine. You don't need to come and join us on Wednesdays. As long as we're praying and we're moving and fighting against hell, that's fine. I think sometimes we get moved in our hearts and we say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and I'm going to pray. And we pray for like once, twice, three times, and, and, and that's it. But what if we were persistent in our prayers and fighting? Naaman, seven times he had to, to dunk himself in, uh, in the Jordan River. This is what Mark Batterson says. Seven times he has to dunk himself in the water. What if he stopped at four times? The miracle of God would not have been appropriated in his life. The people of God had to walk around Jericho's wall seven times, and then that last time, seven times more. What if they stopped after five times? Elijah had to go and pray for rain, look at the cloud seven times before a cloud appeared in the sky. There's a constant... Constantly throughout scripture, it says to, to be persistent in our prayers. And then we'll see the transformation of God. It's great that we saw so many people come to faith in Christ. But what if, we, what if we prayed and trusted God for more? What could God do in our church and through our church if we took seriously the commands of God and the call of God in our lives? To not lean on our own efforts, to not lean on what we can do, but to fight in prayer, to see the kingdom of darkness invaded by the kingdom of light. And instead of thinking, what can I, uh, what can I reasonably think that God can do in me? Instead of thinking that, to think beyond what it says in Ephesians 3. He is able to do immeasurably more than all that we could ask or imagine. What if we believed in the God who promised that and we believed that he could do all that and more? And we began to expect great things from him and then to attempt great things from him. To not compare ourselves with how other people are doing, but to say, what can I do in order to fight against the kingdom of hell? To shake the gates of Hades against whom Christ and his church will always prevail. And what would that look like for us? And we've got to know what we have addition to knowing what we're fighting against. And then the last thing here, we have to know um, our competition. We have to know what we've got, and then we've got to make a choice to go all in. And that's, that's it. 
what do I mean by that? If you, if you can imagine the title of this talk, you're like, what the heck does that mean? Uh, what do you do when you've got a royal flush? Here's what I'm saying. You're playing poker, right? I don't know if you play poker. I don't really play poker, but I, I know what a royal flush is. It's the highest hand in poker. The unbeatable hand. This is the glorious hand. Nothing in all of poker will ever be able to defeat that. And you've got this hand. No matter what anyone else says, no matter what anyone else thinks they have, no matter what kind of trash everybody else talks, if you know you've got the highest hand in the game, how do you not go all in on that? If you know that you can't be defeated, why would you fold and act as if you don't have anything? But that's what we do many times. We've got the most amazing, unbeatable hand. Jesus promised the gates of hell will not prevail. We are guaranteed victory. We are assured that we will not be losers. We know that every investment we make for the kingdom of God is going to be rewarded with an eternal return as well as a return here on earth. If we've got an unbeatable hand, why do we act as if we've got nothing? What keeps us from going all in for God? What keeps us from thinking that we can do it through the power of God? And we look so often at what other people say and what other people have, but if you've got the ultimate hand, you don't care what anyone else says. You don't care what anyone else thinks. You don't care that people say, I'm going to beat you, I'm going to defeat you, you can't win. None of that matters if you know that you've got the best hand. And that's what we have. And that's what we've got. And people throughout history have said the world has yet to see what God can do through one man, one woman who has completely surrendered to God. This one person, that's all. But what if there was more? Throughout the Bible, it's just God looking for one person to stand in the gap amidst the people. In the book of Numbers, right, everyone is dying and, and, and one person stood between the living and the dead. Like just one person. Ezekiel 22, God's looking for someone to stand in the gap on behalf of the people, but it says he found none. In the book of Judges, it's, it's two people. Right, 12 spies go out, they chart out the land and 10 of them come back, say it's impossible, we can't do it. But Joshua and Caleb, they knew what they had. They knew that they could not be beat. And they didn't care what anybody else said. They didn't care what everybody else was saying. They didn't care that saying culture is is warring against our people and they're going to defeat our young people. Our young people don't stand a chance. Our old people don't stand a chance. There's no way that these people could be saved. If you've got the ultimate hand, then you don't care what anybody else says. So let's go for it. I don't care. Let's go for it. There's nothing to lose. We've got nothing to lose. And so we go for it. We go all in. They say, God, I'll I'll give myself to you. Whatever that means, whatever that looks like. I'll be bold because I know that I can't lose at the end of the day. I'll be diligent. I'll pray. I'll fight. I'll give it a shot. Even if it means me being ridiculed because none of that stuff matters because at the end of the day, I'm always going to go home with all the chips. We're always going to be the victors because we've got the best hand. Why would we quit? Why would we fold? Why would we hold back? I was talking with one 
fellow at, at the retreat, you know, he used to play football, just gave his life to the Lord, committed to living for him. And he's talking about how you know, he was at his, um, the, his old teammates would get together and they'd have these Christmas parties, right? just like old times. All the players would get together, coaches would get together. I'd say, hey, Walt, have a, you know, have some, have a drink or have some beer. And these other guys are drinking and getting, um, you know, their fill of alcohol and getting plastered. And he's like, no, nah, I, don't, I don't do that kind of stuff. Some of these guys are, are playing football. You know, he was at, at a great Pennsylvania, one of three states, Texas and Florida. Huge. Football is huge. He's saying, I, I don't do that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm living for the Lord. And he's just talking about these people right, who are there, just extremely successful as he talks to them. They realize they're just so empty. Any joy in life. And he's trying to bring hope to them, trying to speak truth into their lives. And they're saying, man, you've given up all this stuff, right? You've given up all this stuff to follow after Jesus. Now, here's a man who's gone all in for Christ and he realized it's worth it. And I... And I pray that there will be more of us who would do this to realize people are going to make fun of us. That's cool. That's fine. There are people who talk trash about you at your school or at work. Like that, what a sad life. You got to go to church on Sunday. Man, everyone else, we're all watching football. We're having parties. We're hanging out late. We're sleeping in. And you're here at church. It's too bad. Why are you always spending time at church? Why are you always having people over, spending your money to host people at your home, feeding them when you could be buying nicer clothes, a nicer car, saving up for a new home? Why are you doing all this stuff? Begin to ridicule you, talk about you. Is it really worth it? They look at us carrying the cross of Christ. Why are you doing that? That old rugged, nasty, smelly, jagged, blood-stained cross. Why are you carrying that? They make fun of us. They shame us. Ask us if it's worth it. Insult us. And we say to the old rugged cross, that I will ever be true. It's shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me one day to my home far away where forever his glory I'll share. So I'll cling to the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it one day for a crown. There's nothing else in this life worth living for. And we're guaranteed victory. We're fighting against hell. We've got the glorious hand. And what keeps us from giving everything to him? What keeps us from going all in? This year, guys, let's dream. And let's dare and let's go. Let's cling to the cross. Though we may be ridiculed here on earth, we're assured victory in this life as well as in the life to come. Just pray to the Lord and and give thanks to him for the old rugged cross when God was looking for one, Jesus Christ was the one.
gave himself for you and for me and for all against whom hell wars. Let's cling to the old rugged cross. We can't lose. We'll exchange it one day for a crown when all the treasures of this life we lay down before him. Say, Jesus, I'm all in. 2013, God, I'm all in. Make my life count. No more living by sight when live by faith. No more living according to my passions. I'm going to live for the kingdom of God. No more half-hearted compromise. I'm going to choose consistency, Christ-likeness. No more depending on myself. I'm going to be a man, a woman of prayer. No more living for my own dreams. I'm going to live for the dreams of the kingdom above. I'm going to cling to the old rugged cross. Exchange it one day for a crown. Let's pray together for a couple moments, and I'll pray for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to lay down all that holds us back. All of our hopes and our dreams, our sins, our failures, our flaws, our past, our bitterness, our anger, our excuses, our idols, our pride, our insecurities. Father, help us to lay all of these things down and to see what we have. Jesus, this is your church. This is your kingdom. This is about you and it's not about us. So, Father, hide us behind the cross so that in seeing us, we'd be hidden and that Christ would be visible in us as individuals in every house church in our church. Together we would lift high the cross. Glory of your name be the passion of our church. You'd help us to see greater things in this year to come. And again, help us not to sit on the sidelines, but to jump in, get involved. We'd make your invisible kingdom visible here on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.